This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Culture and Everyday Life podcast produced by the Elphinstone Institute at the University of Aberdeen. The Elphinstone Institute is a centre for the study of ethnology, folklore and ethnomusicology with a research and public engagement remit covering the northeast and north of Scotland. Through interaction with researchers and practitioners, this podcast explores cultural phenomena in everyday life. Welcome all. I'm very pleased to introduce Leonard Primiano. Uh, he's, uh Spent many years applying folklore methodologies and ideas to the study of religion and religious ideas, and particularly those of you who are on the MLIT program will have read his article on vernacular religion, religion as it is lived and practiced by real people. Um, so we're very lucky to have had him here due to a strange confluence of circumstances. Maybe there's a higher power involved. I think it's Mary, it's the higher power who's involved. Um, but we're very lucky to have him here, and he's going to be talking about uh, Catholic kitsch, religious art and folk art, and uh, ways of looking at it. So, Leonard, please. Thank um, thank you. Now, let me see how I'm going to play with this. How's that? Good. Oh, let me see. You've got the title. <laughs> That's my greeting to each and every one of you. Good morning, lovers of folk or religion, and as I say in Philadelphia, peace, everyone. Peace, Leonard. One more time, please. Peace, everyone. Peace. Thank you so much. Now, uh, I always say for people that have never encountered someone who uses an electrolarynx, well, I, I usually answer three questions. Number one, these are questions that I'm always asked. Number one, I never smoked a day in my life. That's, quite, that's answer number one. Answer number two, I'm not currently dying. I look like I'm dying. And number three, it doesn't hurt me to talk. Yes, that's why Marion, we're gonna miss the train, that I'm gonna be here for five hours talking about kids. I just go on and on, and until the battery stops working. <laughs> and so I have no problem with that. People always wonder if it hurts me to talk. They say, my students wishes it hurt me to talk, but it does not. So I'm going to present a reflection um, on work that I'm continuing about religion and kitsch. And this is for an article that I'm writing in the Routledge Guide to Religion and Popular Culture, which is uh, ostensibly going to come out as soon as I finish this article. Uh, They're waiting for it right now. 
and uh, it's been very difficult because I had no idea about the literature about Kitsch, uh, how much of it there was, and uh, even since last summer when I first gave a paper about this at the CF meeting, I've just been astonished about how much stuff I've found about it and uh, it's like you know when you think you know everything and you've done searches and then all of a sudden you find something that if you had published that article without reading that you would have shot yourself and that's sort of where i am i like keep finding articles and thinking oh my god how could i not have read that one and so uh, I, I think at this point I, I more or less um i can see from what at least i can see from what i'm seeing in looking at the uh, notes of the articles that i seem to have read everybody and that they haven't necessarily read each other and so i feel confident that i can now proceed okay but this is not really an end statement but let's just let's just give you a little bit of information we'll go from there let's start with this um this lovely item uh i went to, I just have to look at one more slide, okay. I went to a conference uh, in Lisbon a few weeks ago. It was our working group in ethnology and religion for the CF. And uh, a woman there who was a fascinating Hungarian and American citizen. Uh, she had her PhD from uh, NYU and she's now doing research in Hungary. And uh, she was studying a Hungarian, a contemporary Hungarian mystic and a religious environment. And uh, one of her field consultants went into the tent enclosure that this woman has set up, the mystic has set up. And the tent enclosure is filled with a variety of lithographs and chromo lithographs. You know what those are? And inexpensive uh, images, uh, colored images. Uh, of historical and contemporary Catholic saints and her consultant said as soon as she saw those images and again the mystic had sort of had constructed this space as a vernacular shrine and her consultant said that this was a kitsch parade a kitsch parade fascinating so that's what she said when she entered and she saw all those images on the wall she said um, I want to get the exact quote, what a kitsch parade, to which the Lord, in the form of a voice, said, kneel down, this is a good Lord voice, apparently she did not obey, and so the command was repeated by God, kneel down, she finally knelt down, and, um, listening to the Lord, and it only goes to show that Jesus himself loves inexpensive Roman Catholic lithographs and chromolithographs of the saints as well as himself. I always that say with Jesus loving images of himself. Now, whether this consultant was referring to the space in general or the accumulated effect of this particular collection of images contained in the space, Items which I might add are available at at most Catholic religious goods stores or even the back of churches or shrines. The the first word that came to mind when entering this crowded, visual, vernacular religious environment was the word kitsch. Webster's third international dictionary defines the word kitsch as quote artistic or literary material held to be of low quality, often produced in appeal to popular tastes 
and marked especially by sentimentalism, sensationalism, and slickness, end quote. The word is derived from the German kitchen, K-I-T-S-C-H-E-N, which means to slap a work of art together, and from German dialect, to scrape up mud from the street. So it's fascinating, these derivations. When approaching the subject of kitsch, and certainly before considering its relationship to religion, and I'm talking about institutional religion, uh, a world religious tradition, or within vernacular religiosity, one must be mindful that kitsch is a technical term. I've been very aware of this when I've been reading all this, all these scholarly articles about it. It's a technical term. It is, it is scholarly jargon emerging out of art criticism and critical analysis of industrial society, especially Marxist critique, describing what has been recognized as a phenomenon of the Industrial Revolution, that is, mass-produced, often marketed material culture. Kitsch is also a term not only for objects or literature or behavior, but an expression which ostensibly describes the taste of common people, using a description that the folk themselves do not recognize, understand, or necessarily use, and that includes all socioeconomic levels of the folk. Uh, what I'm saying is all socioeconomic levels do not necessarily understand the word kitsch, including, for example, well, I was in, I went to see my doctors in New York City for a checkup, and uh, they, as you know, if you've been to the doctor, they always keep you waiting while they go and do something important, or they're reading a file or whatever, and so I always bring a book to the doctor, oh my god, and read. And whenever they come in the examining room, they're always like in a state of shock that a patient's actually reading. And so when they came in, they said, oh my gosh, what are you reading? And I said, oh, it's an article about kitsch. And I was fascinated that these two highly trained medical specialists looked at me like, well, what is that? And I had to explain to them what the word meant. And, uh, and, and uh, I was really quite surprised that it was not a word in common usage. And even among these uh, ostensibly, as I said, educated people, that they did not know its meaning. So it, it really is a technical word. And as scholars, we can't forget about the fact that it is jargon. I really think that's important. Now, what I'm going to do is I've broken down the articles and the books I've read about Kitsch in the four basic camps. So scholars of Kitsch fall into these four basic categories. And I'm going to sort of define those for you. Number one, cultural analysts, such as, let's hope he comes up, there he is, literary scholar, uh, Matei Kalinescu, and art critic, this guy, Clement Greenberg, and this gentleman, Judo Dorflay. They place kitsch items squarely in the world of mass-produced bad taste. And, uh... Clement Greenberg, I go back to him, is really the one who popularized this interest about Kitsch with his article in the Paris Review in the uh, early part of the 20th century. Okay, there's the flame. 
then uh that's so that's number one the sort of art critical approach number two uh, historians of religion, David Morgan, who's at Duke University right here, and Colleen McDaniel, who's at the University of Utah, who do not wish to state an opinion, but note the influence of mass-produced religious items in the cultural history of Christian denominational practice, generating a gendered argument about Kitsch's importance, and that's certainly what McDaniel does in her book, Material Christianity. She critiques Kitsch, especially Roman Catholic Kitsch, based on his gendered argument. Um, I have a problem with her general approach to that fact. I think she doesn't understand Vatican II, which is a big boo-boo. But, uh, I, uh, I've, uh, sort of reflected on the way she argues and about, about, uh, the way Roman Catholic churches have, uh, developed, um, how can I say it, a, a non-hierarchical response to the patriarchy of pre-Vatican II, and, um, she feels that there was a, a real feminized, uh, imagery uh, and that that was removed in the period of the 50s into the Vatican II period, and that there was a more masu a masculinized imagery after that, and she shows that with uh, statues and holy cards, etc. It's really quite interesting, but she sort of misses the idea that that Vatican II liturgical imagery in terms of altars being in the round and the removal of the hierarchical status of the priest is all relational and all feminine. And so that, that I think Vatican II, that the, the architecture and the imagery of Vatican II, in fact, is very not masculine but feminine, which sort of goes against her argument. But that's, that's my comment about McDonald. Uh, number three, this third category is, uh, is theological scholars. And this is one gentleman by the name of Frank Birch Brown. And he searches for Kitsch's place in the aesthetics of especially Christian religious life. And so he's really trying to say is where where can Christians go with Kitsch? How is it important or isn't it important? Is it bad taste? What's the relationship between bad taste and Kitsch? And of course people often bring in the word camp. And is there a relationship between camp, etc, etc? Uh, can you even take camp objects and re-sort of... Uh, but think about them, reflect on them theologically. So he's asking really for a theological consideration of Kitsch. And then finally, this lady, one of the most devoted scholars of Kitsch is the cultural historian Celeste, and her name is Olalquiaga. It's O-L-A-L-Q-U-I-A-G-A. -A -A. Now she really is the diva of Kitsch, if I do say so myself. And she presents Kitsch in her book, which is called The Artificial Kingdom, A Treasury of the Kitsch Experience. And she presents it as a cultural sensibility of loss. She traces its origins as a massive phenomenon of living in a vicarious, indirect way to the 19th century, presenting Kitsch as the ambivalent crystallization of the lost experience of pre-industrial life and the attempt to recover emotional intensity in the face of technology and dehumanization. The artificial kingdom explores this sensibility through the objects and narratives it produced. So what's fascinating is what, uh, what does she say is, is the, what are the objects 
what are what is this um what are the objects and narratives that help bring this new sensibility this uh something that can help and the emotional intensity of humans in the face of the of technological dehumanization well starting in the 19th century it's at this book is absolutely fascinating what she discovers is the importance of underwater imagery popular underwater imagery and uh, of the time in the 19th century and so what she relates to the history of kitsch is the beginning of the use of aquariums paperweights and the myth of atlantis and jules verne the twenty thousand league under the sea and she has in its fascinating book this whole discussion about aquariums and things like this and i mean it's just fantastic and so that that part of it is very inventive um she also has a great chapter on the influence of the development of large panes of glass in paris in the 19th century and how that influenced the development of kids in department store windows and she feels that large panes of glass were brought then to england during the victorian era for the use in the uh crystal palace and then, then they were also used in Martin stores. So it's an absolutely fascinating read. And uh, if you just want a book and do enjoy, you'll be fascinated to see how she strings all these ideas together. Okay, so I was happy. I found that book and I thought very satisfied about that. And then, oh my God, I discovered, of course, that prior to this book and almost overlooked by me until I found a used copy is her now out of print 1992 study, which is called Megalopolis. And in this volume, Olaf Wiaka offers a typology of Kitsch in her chapter that's called Holy Kitchen, Holy K-I-T-S-C-H-E-N, Collecting Religious Junk from the Street. That's her chapter. Within post-modernity, Olaquiaga believes that different iconographies fight for hegemony and that three degrees of Catholic kitsch have come to overlap in time and space. Number one, first degree kitsch is represented by the imagery available at church entrances and botanicas. Um, you know what a botanica is? It's, uh, in, uh, Afro-Caribbean religion, it's a spiritual goods shop where you would get imagery, candles, uh, oils, things like that. Um, and so that's what a botanica is. So imagery available in church, at church entrances and botanicas, which technically has been produced simply and cheaply. For believers, it represents the relationship between object and user, which is immediate and one of genuine belief. For believers, she notes, kitsch objects are meaningful even when used ornamentally. And so we've got this collection of candles and statues that people certainly could use to be to beautify their homes, but also to light when they have an intention to a saint, the Virgin Mary, etc. These same objects are observed from a distance by what she calls kitsch aficionados, these individuals, and I bet you know who they are, me. I'm one who achieved vicarious pleasure by collecting kitsch objects. Let's have one. <laughs> what can one say about that?
I didn't bring that with me because I didn't want to break it. So, first degree believers, uh, attachment is directly related to the devotional meaning of the iconography. Uh, but for aficionados, this meaning is secondary. What matters is not what the images represent, but the intense feelings, for example, of hope, fear, awe that they inspire. There is no religious attachment here, but a fascination and attraction with the directness of feelings which the aficionados are attempting to recover. And let's have a picture of something like that. So, I don't know, I fall in between. I think I have a very uh, emotional religious attachment to objects, religious objects. I was raised as a Catholic, and I still have that strong feeling. And so I can, I have, at least in myself, a sort of religious connection to these objects. At the same time, I sort of collect them and have a certain attitude about them that is both fascinating and, and sometimes I can certainly laugh at Catholicism with love and at the same time sort of take it seriously. I don't know how to explain that. Maybe I need to write an article about myself as far as that's concerned. But it's, uh, sometimes it's, it's interesting to observe it in these different ways. So, uh, this is, um, an interesting, uh, image of the, uh, Divine Mercy Jesus, which is, um, a early 20th century apparition of Jesus, which was in Poland. Well, Poland and Lithuania are arguing about this. It's sort of a, it's sort of a, uh, an homage to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, but done by this woman's sister, Faustina, in Poland, near Krakow. And uh, this was a favorite of John Paul II, and now it's uh, been made into a major devotion within the Catholic Church, and it has spread to the in Catholic churches in the same way that the Sacred Heart devotion spread between the 1600s and late 1950. So this one is sort of taken over in some ways from the Sacred Heart, even though it is an image of the Sacred Heart. But it's it's I'm sort of experimenting with how to think about this because uh, obviously the images you see those 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 colors coming from Jesus, and so I find the imagery itself, I don't know, it seems to start from a rather kitschy place in the way it is used in color, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, uh, we've got first degree kitsch, and we've got the aficionados related to the first degree believers. Okay, now, for, uh, for all the Kweaka, we've got second degree kitsch, and which is what she calls neo-kitsch. Let's have an image there. These are empty icons, mass-produced religious products sold in specialized shops like those selling souvenirs or novelties. Devoid of the intensity that aficionados seek, they are bland reproductions that exist as toys to pass on. A popularization of camp sensibility they are designed as a commodity for exchange or enterprise. Let's have another one. Don't you all want to own those? You all seem thrilled. Aren't they hideous? Yes. Now, we've got, uh, we've got, uh, so we have first degree kitsch, we have second degree kitsch, and now we have our third category, third degree kitsch. And in third degree kitsch, for Olaquiaga, Catholic iconography is invested with a new or foreign set of meanings generating a hybrid product. It represents an act 
effective transformation of kitsch objects and environments by fine artists in a revalorization of Catholic iconography and the changing of the value of what for a believer is already valuable, a valuable religious asset. So I'm going to show you now three images that she uses specifically to exemplify this idea of third degree kitsch. So in other words, it's making a fine art product out of a, if you will, first degree kitsch item, okay? And she's using uh, these photographs taken by this uh, professional photographer in Massachusetts named Dana Salvo. And let me just show you one. So this is his book, Home Altars of Mexico. And again, these are images that he hauls in a giant camera. And he takes these and he sets up for hours these shots in the homes of these, uh, you know, Mexican, average Mexican believers. And he produced a book of art photography of the, of the imagery of these individuals. Let me show you one more. Now, they're fantastic shots in many ways, um, but it, again, he is producing these not as ethnographic shots, not as ethnographic photography, but as art photography that can be sold as art photography. And I, let me show you one other one. I would, I've always loved this one. I don't know if, it, if it's as good as Larry, you maybe if you look on the side, it might be clearer. Now he wants to sell these for thousands of dollars, as, as I say, as art photography. And uh, sort of to make the point of this, I had a fascinating encounter with this man, Dana Salvo. Like, he called me on the phone about 10 years ago. And, you know, he wrote me an email, and he said that he wanted to have someone write a book on... Uh, write the write the text for a book of photographs that he was taking of altars of women in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and they celebrate the Saint Joseph Day by decorating these incredible, making these incredible altar displays relating to Saint Joseph in the week before and during March the nineteenth, which is the feast of Saint Joseph. Well, we went. And, Marion, did I tell you this story? Maybe I did. Uh, you may have forgotten it. I went with, uh, I got, I said, well, you know, it's one thing for me as folklore to come and do this, but I'd like to get some colleagues to come, and we would do this together as a team approach. So I sort of assembled a really fantastic group, which is Joseph Shura and Kay Turner. And so we were like the dream team of folklore to go up there and attack Gloucester and see what we could find during the St. Joseph Altar period. Well, we did that. We did field work with the people. It's fantastic. But then Dana Salvo, when when we sort of said, well, our concept, by the way, we also had got the publisher for the book. That was the other point of it, that we were the one he couldn't find a publisher himself. But an argument ensued that we wanted the photographs to accompany the text so that people would actually understand the cultural background of the photographs. And he became offended that we were taking over the book, that 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 it was going to be a book of ethnography with his photographs accompanying the ethnography as opposed to the other way around. And so he argued, and it was a rather nasty, fascinating moment with this man. And uh, 
we just, the project unfortunately fell apart after we had done all the field work. So we're actually thinking of going back and taking ethnographic photographs and doing our own book about Glosser because this stuff is fantastic. And of course, Marius, I was saying that was a place that was influenced by the sex scandal as well. And it's a very traditional Portuguese and Sicilian culture in that place. But the one image I go back. There we go. That is one from Glosser. And those are the types of fabulous altars that these women set up. But that, again, that is, uh, I mean, I love that photograph, but that is not an, I don't know, I mean, what you can talk about this, is that an ethnographic shot? I mean, to me it is, because it has such detail, and Dana's good about the detail, but Dana doesn't see it as an ethnographic photograph, he sees it as an art photograph. And I don't know technically, but he's using his giant lens. Uh, to take this photograph, he makes money by by making uh, by taking photographs of fine art for the Boston Museum of Fine Art for insurance purposes and for books. So that's sort of the way he thinks about it. But uh, at any rate, all up we got. I was amazed when I was reading her article, and she has this third degree kitsch category: this photography of a sense art photography of kitsch. And she was using Dana Salvo. I almost fell off my chair when I found out that she was using him. It was like a, a, a ghost coming back from so many years later. Okay, fine. Uh, in addition to Olakwiaka, I have found useful the ideas of engineer and philosopher Abraham Moles who has noted that Kitsch is essentially an aesthetic system of mass communication. That's his quote, Kitsch is essentially an aesthetic system of mass communication. Moles speculates that Kitsch allows the masses to quote, pass from sentimentality to sensation, from mere pleasure to the genuine experience of art. I am constructing an argument that the communicative power of Catholic Kitsch is perhaps better understood through a change in Mole and Mole's proposal, where sentimentality, sacramentality, and memory permit Kitsch to pass from the passive role of usually material pleasure to the active mental and physical state of genuine devotion. So. Uh, he's saying that kitsch is simply can be used to get people to understand fine art in a different way. I'm saying that, of course, people use kitsch in their own lives to generate genuine devotion themselves. So I'm much more centered on the devotion of the religious lives of individuals and people. Now, what I think is really important about this point is the question of how is kitsch being used by average people? today in the context of what I call visual religious illiteracy, and that is teaching college students, as I am lucky enough to do. I've discovered, of course, that they don't understand anything about religion anymore, and they don't understand any themes about religion or characters, characters from the great religious stories, even in Christianity. And along with that, religious illiteracy has come a visual religious illiteracy so that the current generation does not understand basic symbols of religiosity that you would, you would think they would understand. To the, and also, I think, Marion, we were told at one conference that there are some people that 
some students now that have never even stepped foot in a church. And so they just, maybe you told me that, and that, you know, if it's, if you're trying to teach Christianity and you have a class where people don't have any knowledge of that kind of material at all, you have to start absolutely from, you know, the base uh, of the, of the, you know, step one of knowledge. You can't depend on that. And I've been taught for 20 years. I know the difference between teaching that subject 20 years ago and teaching it now. It's like, as I said, uh, last week or not five months ago, I was, I, I made a reference in class to Samson and I thought that students would know the biblical story of Samson and they looked at me like I should have said Spider-Man. It's like they just didn't know who Samson was in a million years. And so that base of knowledge is gone. So I'm fascinated at any rate in relationship to this this, this paper and this research about what is the relationship of kitsch in the lives of, of religious individuals today and especially in the lives of individuals that seem to be visually, religiously illiterate. The consideration of kitsch asks us to reflect on the question is kitsch always in the mind of the beholder, or is the kitschification of the world, the re-presentation of the world through cheaply reduced reproductions, in fact, so complete that it now nullifies the separation of any given object as kitsch? Indeed, can anyone Again, any one object be called Catholic kitsch from an ethnographic perspective? Uh, if individuals don't understand any other kind of vis religious visuals except kitsch, how can we be calling these things kitsch to begin with? I'm excited to observe and study how contemporary Catholics will read religious objects of all shapes and sizes and quality and incorporate them into their spirituality as they gather influences and work to create their vernacular religious lives into the 21st century. For now, as I continue ethnographic work with Catholics of all ages concerning kitsch in their lives, I would like to close by offering you a typology which emerged from my own recollections on objects of kitsch themselves. I have created this very subjective classification or categorization scheme based on the intentions of the producer, not necessarily the user, so let me repeat that, this is based on the intentions of the producer of the kitsch, not necessarily the user, an attempt at nuancing a class of Roman Catholic material culture, specifically objects and visual representations, not necessarily literature, dress, food ways, etc., which might also be designated as Catholic kitsch. So let's just look at a few of these and I'll try to break them down this classification and these visual, these visual representations. When I gave this classification scheme at the American Folklore Society, the audience started yelling at me, little me, can you imagine? And I've never gotten that kind of response before, so I really have to laugh. And uh, often when I, uh, anywhere I go, scholars don't like that I'm even talking about kitsch at all. They don't like the classification, but everybody always loves the topic. And so it, it's really quite amazing to me. Okay, let's have um, my classification number one. And this is right here, kitsch that mocks or demeans the culture of the Catholic tradition or institutionalized Catholicism. Putting Catholic Christian figures in inappropriate contexts, contexts for the purpose of humor or irony or vulgarity.
So here we have, uh, this was bought at Borders, the old Borders Corporation, and it is a glitter Virgin Mary that has been made into a bank, and this was sold at Christmas time, you can see that. Obviously it's painted a lovely color. And do we have another one? Yes, this is, um, well, it looks like a lovely image of a nun. Perhaps it's a candle, but in fact, it is a dog toy. And so, when the dog bites it, it squeaks. I wish I had it with me so you could hear it. And so, it's a nun squeaking toy. So, again, I at least I would uh, categorize this as something that mocks or demeans the culture of Christian tradition. Alright, number two. Category two. A kitsch that celebrates the culture of Catholicism in in its playfulness. For example, related to or giving homage homage to older or pre-Vatican II Catholicism. Also, in the way it relates to contemporary Catholicism, use of religious medals or rosaries as decoration or tattooing of a Catholic image. Let's see what we've got. Oh, there we've got some band-aids. Lovely items. Now, of course, this is utterly subjective. Number three, catch that is devotional and evangelizing, but is mass-produced of inexpensive materials for profit. Colorful plastic rosaries distributed at parochial grade schools or glow-in-the-dark rosaries. But what have I got for you? This fantastic mass-produced Our Lady of Fatima and uh, this beautiful image of Jesus playing ice hockey which is used as an evangelical tool. That just speaks for itself. I bought that in Canada, I might say. <laughs> uh, okay, number four, kitsch. That is vernacular in creation, not mass-produced, but which can be made of either costly or inexpensive materials. For example, a saint's or an apparitional statue, but I've got two of you. Number one, Mary, you got me this from Poland, from Krakow. It's a tradition. Is it a Christmas tradition about decorating things like the cathedral uh, from the center of Krakow? And um, you can buy them all in all sizes, but they're also a vernacular tradition from the Christmas season there. And then this lovely item, which is the soul in purgatory, which is a takeoff on the Mexican interest in this. And uh, I have to say, this is my... Uh, when I have some money, I've decided to start a collection of, of if I can call them, authentic Mexican folk art of souls in Purgatory. I'm fascinated with its imagery, but this is a refrigerator magnet that I found in Los Angeles of this, but it's actually homemade, so it's really quite nicely done. Um, okay, now we've got number five, category number five, kitsch, especially memorializing objects or images which, uh, which were quite significant, which were quite serious in their original purpose, but they've been transformed into kitsch in the present, so I guess I could say that when they were originally produced, this, these images would not necessarily be seen as kitsch, but perhaps they would be now, and this to me is like the sledgehammer example. Can you absorb that one? Can you imagine that that was going to be thrown away? That I had to save that from the trash? That valuable art artifact? 
So, uh, for those of you that might not know, that is, um, I'm just in Italy, in Bergamo, and, uh, that is where John the 23rd is from nearby, and so I saw so many images, and actually, uh, uh, he's donated various, he donated his papal tiara there to the cathedral, and there's all kinds of things related to his life. But this, this fantastic combination from the early 60s of JFK and the Pope, and it's fantastic. Uh, okay, category number six, Gitch, that is whimsical in its reproduction of historical material culture. For example, contemporary Batablos. Okay, let's have this one. Oh no, I'm sorry, we have this beanie baby. And then this retablo so it's a mexican retablo and there's this entire tradition now of uh, art students in mexico doing sort of doing an homage to the retablo uh, and doing all of these contemporary scenes and you can buy these on ebay and i presume i haven't actually ever been to mexico but i assume you can buy this as tourist art i think but even though i have no idea where in mexico you can buy it but it's really present on ebay a lot and uh, fantastic stuff that they produce, and it's all social commentary in many ways. But I've been told that they're made by art students um, to make money. And then, uh, Kitsch, this is uh, classification number seven, Kitsch, that is in intentionally commemorative or an homage to Catholic culture. And let's see that. Now this, of course, is very American in that you have parochial schools and this uh, application of the nun. She has a ruler there and, uh, you know, with the discipline of children and he's in his uh, uh, coat and tie, which is something you see here a lot. But in America, people don't wear coats and ties unless they go to a prep school or a parochial school. And I think I've got one more. Oh, this is for, of course, your car. This is... Um, now this is, this is my 8th category, that's 7, that intentionally commemorative, and number 8 is Kitsch that combines text and image for an unusual effect, and that is this one, this is of course you to hang in your car, to deodorize the car, and evangelize it at the same time, and then this tradition, which I don't know if it's in Europe or not, this is this St. Joseph tradition about, uh, real estate, that if you're trying to sell your house, that you would bury a statue of St. Joseph backwards, and then once you sell it, you uh, you dig them up, and you have to put a statue in a place of honor in your new home. So it's in, it's in a way like an exoto. But I love the graphics. I love the fact that you can buy it as a kit, and that you go to a store and seek it out, and I'm constantly told by religious goods stores in America that they don't have any that realtors go in there and buy them all, and that they give them out to people, and especially in an era when real estate was difficult to sell, that these were out all the time, and Jewish realtors buy them just as much as anybody else, that they're, that they're so popular. But I love the graphic, I love the fact that it's telling you how to do it, there's a prayer inside, the house salt, isn't that fan fabulous, fantastic. Okay, um, and then five was number eight, so that was Kitsch that combines text and image for unusual effect. And then finally, we've got, oh god, I wish I had an image of one of my favorites from the 1920s that I bought on eBay is a Jesus, a picture of Jesus, which is actually from a, a, um, potato chip company in Pennsylvania. 
and they've somehow combined this image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus with the selling of potato chips. And it's from the Pennsylvania German area, the Pennsylvania Dutch area. I mean, it's all about a mental freakout. Catholic Sacred Heart. The Pennsylvania Germans, the Amish, and the Pennites had potato chips in one image. Fantastic stuff. <laughs> I don't have it for you, I'm sorry. And finally, a kitsch that is ironical concerning Catholic culture. Can you get that one? Is that somebody you know? So that's President Obama with uh, Martin DeBoris. And that was bought for me by uh, a professor in San Francisco. What a surprise. And then finally, Nunzilla. Uh, and this is in honor of the film which recently came out. But this was our previous. It's another uh, of this uh, irony about Catholic school and Nunzilla. She's got the ruler, and she also has uh, sparks that come out of her mouth when you wind her up. So it's as fearsome nun. Now, this, as I said, is a very sort of subjective uh, assessment, and uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but I love it visually to present these images, and I can't say that I yet have a conclusion to this paper, so I'm going to stop and see what comments you have, and uh, I hope you like the pictures. And I hope you like the ideas, and thank you for your attention. There we go. Peace. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.